This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Support for this podcast comes from Talenti. When Talenti makes gelato and sorbetto, they tend to get a little overzealous. Did they need to use so many raspberries in their Roman raspberry sorbetto that the machine broke? Did they need to try 25 different chai teas to find the perfect spice blend for their vanilla chai gelato? Did they have to invent giant mint steepers to make their Mediterranean mint super minty? Does their obsessiveness make Talenti, Gelato, and Sorbetto the greatest? You be the judge. But yes, it does make them the greatest, and they're also the judge. Talenti, the delicious is in the details. I love this stuff. Thanks, Talenti. Now on with the show. Hey, everybody. It's Ray, and you're listening to 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm your host, Ray Harkins. I said it's, hey, it's Ray, but I, I felt weird just saying, I like, I, I, but say I like my full name. <laughs> That'd be a shame if I didn't like my name because then, yeah, I would just be cursing my, well, because I'm the third. And so I would be cursing my father for being like, yo, dude, why did you keep this naming rights going along? And I, I've, I've done that for myself and my son because now he's the fourth. Oh man, what a tangled web. But that's not why you're here. You're not here to the... The, to listen to the Harkins lineage, you are mostly interested in, not mostly, you are primarily interested in independent music and all the people that make up this weird world, weird subculture we've all ascribed our lives to. And the guest this week is Jonathan Howell. I have collected an entire band, and that band is Less Art. And uh, this, granted, this was a multi year process, and I was maybe speaking to people who when this band didn't even exist. But nonetheless, I have collected every single member of Less Art. And uh, for those of you that are not familiar with Less Art, you need to get up to speed immediately. It's probably one of my favorite records of the year. It features one of my best friends, Mike Minnick, on vocals. He used to sing for Curl Up and Die. And then uh, Riley from Thrice plays drums. Eddie from Thrice plays bass. And Ian from Kowloon Walled City. And John, also from Kowloon Walled City plays in the band and um yeah just a really good record strangled light please get on it super super good but uh let's get some uh, some plugs and some uh mentions out of the way and well not even out of the way just i want to inform you i want to make sure that you are informed and you are going through the world knowing these things and first off major shout out to the orange county register <laughs> It's the uh, you know it's the local paper of record here in Orange County, Southern California, and uh, they named this show one of the uh, top twenty podcasts from the area, and uh, that's pretty great. <laughs> like I saw my name in the newspaper, uh, makes me more legitimate to uh, my parents and uh, other human beings that hit me up on Facebook, being like, "Hey man, I saw your picture in the uh, newspaper," and I'm like, "Oh yeah, that's uh, people still read newspapers, you know." <laughs> but Regardless, it's uh, yeah, it's just awesome to see the show get recognized amongst uh, some of the largest in the uh, podcast universe. So, and because this this show is small peanuts compared to the audiences of uh, you know how did this get made and uh, Adam Carolla's show, it's just crazy stuff. But thank you very much, Orange County Register. I really truly am humbled by that, and uh, I also have to make mention of. The, the guest last week and the show last week exploded. There were so many of you that listened to it. So hopefully if you are along for this ride now and checking out this podcast, welcome back. But uh, I have to mention the fact that the No Record is out on October 10th. It's called Chain Up the Sun, and you can pre-order it at thenativesound.com. And the reason I'm doing that is because I loved the record so much, and I didn't give it the proper amount of love that it deserved 
on last week's show. So I want to make sure that you are aware of that and you dive back and well, not, you don't need to dive back. You just dive into the website and pre-order the vinyl cassette, whatever. Actually, no, they don't have a cassette, but you could just dive into it, pick up the vinyl. Okay. Trust me. The record's really, really good. And then what else do I have to tell you about? Oh, let's not forget some of the coolest stuff that's happening on the internet in regards to punk, hardcore, anything affiliated to that. It's no echo. And I real, I'm realizing as I'm doing this, this preamble about them is that I messed up and I did not send him my show last week, <laughs> which is the only way that he would really know that a new episode's coming out because, you know, he's, he, he's got a life. He doesn't ha- need to pay attention to the singular release of my podcast. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll do that, Carlos. My bad. <laughs> but anyways, noecho.net. It is an incredible website and you need to go there if you care about the comings and goings of punk and hardcore. It's not so much a news central focused website. Um, it's more of a features, reviews, that sort of stuff. And I love what they do over there. So visit the website. And then uh, what else do I got? Nothing, right? Yeah, that's all. Let's let's talk to John, right? John is a really interesting guy, and um, he has such a diverse music taste that um, I was taken aback by some of the, the band names he was dropping. And uh, I mean, very rare instances on this podcast will I be able to talk about Throbbing Gristle. And we were able to, uh, I mean, we didn't nerd out too much about that, but um, just the fact that you know, he was into really, really left of center stuff. It was awesome. So thank you very much, John. And cause he doesn't do a ton of these type of interviews. So I was really glad that uh, he wanted to do that on this show. So that's what we got. Here's John. I'll talk to you. After the it's interesting because it, you know, you and I have never met in person, and this is obviously the first time we are ever talking. <laughs> but sure, we have so many mutual friends, and uh, you know, now we are connected uh, just because all of these mutual friends have thrown us together. Um, it seems to me that that happens so often in independent music, where it's like, even if you don't know a person, you know, your friend is really good friends with them, and then kind of like, hey, you should talk to this guy in order to you know get to know them because it seems like you get along. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. Do, do you you notice that happening more often in the sort of independent music community than other communities maybe that you've been a part of? Yeah, I mean, I guess so. The, the, the thing that I come to with you mentioning that is like when you need to get in touch with someone, when you need to get in touch with someone in another city, it's so much easier to find that mutual connection now. You know, and so that's been the that's been the sort of useful quality of how everybody's connected is that like, hey, you know, I got to go to Kansas City to do a thing, you know, play a show or just hang out. Who do I know there? Who? And then it's so easy to just see the the, the mutual people in between and then somehow get an introduction that way. Um, uh, Ian's actually pretty good with this, too. Uh, he's Ian's very good with that. So um, but yeah, I, I think in general, um there does seem to be a little bit more interconnectedness because the social media aspect of being in a scene is ubiquitous. Like I don't know many people who are completely off all of the platforms. So, um, certainly much easier to find other folks. Yeah, no, totally. And it is interesting too, where I, I find myself, um, you know, cause I, I'm guessing like we're around the same age, if not, you, you know, maybe you're a few years older than me. I'm like 36 years old. And I, I find it, interesting when i interact with people who are not part of our you know weird music world at all and it's like 
I, I automatically assume that these people have like a social media presence where they're like, Hey, do you like, do you have Instagram? Like I've asked my, I mean, my son is six years old and he goes to school. So, I, you know, I interact with, you know, normal parents all the, all the time. And it's, sure, yeah. I asked them that and I'm like, wait a minute, maybe that's not a normal thing to ask. Cause most people are just like, what do you mean? Do you, do you have an Instagram? What does that, what does that mean? <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. It's, um, but I think, I, I think everybody's on there. There's very few people I know that have either have never signed up, um, or just keep a low profile. I, uh, I know a number of folks who keep a very low profile on social media, but everybody's on there. So, yeah, no, <laughs> and I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if your parents are, are still around, but like my parents are on there, you know, like my 70 year old aunts are on there. It's, it's, it's nutty. So <laughs> that's true. They're like, I got to check up with Johnny just to make sure he's doing okay. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to like that post. It's going to be good. <laughs> so, and I'm sure, I'm sure for them it happens like, you know, you post something and then three weeks later you get a like, you're like, Oh, there's my aunt. Like there she is yeah. coming around. Yep. <laughs> just remembered her password. This is, this is great. That's so amazing. Yeah. Um, you were, you yourself, you were, you were born and raised in Ohio. Am I correct? Or was that somewhere else? No, that's correct. Uh, I was born and raised in, um, outside of Cleveland. Uh, the place I grew up was about 25 minutes Southeast of Cleveland. And yeah, I lived there until I moved to the West coast, uh, which was like 23 or 24 when I was 23 or 24. Okay. Got it. So yeah, yeah. you were, um, you were, uh, I guess, from a distance in certain respects, observing, you know, once you started to become aware of independent music, uh, you know, did the Cleveland hardcore scene loom large or was that something that you um, just didn't key into? It's something I didn't key into. I, um, in terms of sort of independent music there, I, I didn't know much about it uh, growing up in and around Cleveland, which is not to say it wasn't there. I now know how much of it was there. Uh, but it just was you know, being from the suburbs and not having anybody around me that was particularly clued into like, I don't know, like craw or nine shocks terror or those, those kind of bands. Like it just, it never came up. So I didn't really get any sense of, uh, or, or learn about independent music until I went to college. And then, uh, I went to college in Northwest Pennsylvania. Um, and, so the scene that I became really familiar with and I'm still actually incredibly fond of is the Pittsburgh scene from the nineties all the way through the two thousands. I thought they just did, there were so many amazing bands and uh, a lot of these bands would actually come up and play my college, which was how I got to know about them in the first place. So that was, that was my first real like, you know, entry into any kind of scene or knowledge of a scene. Right. Right. No, that's cool that you were able to, um, cause yeah, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh is a weird city for independent music, just based on the fact that, you know, it's kind of on tour routes, but not entirely, you know, sometimes it just gets skipped over. But like, I remember that there was that venue, was it the Mr. Roboto project? Is that? A, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I still, uh, I don't fit into it anymore. My wife wears it, but I have a t-shirt from Roboto project that pops up in our house all the time. And, uh, <laughs> so good. yeah. You know, I mean, like I remember, going there oh man, it must have been 2000 or 2001 and going to Roboto project and seeing the blood brothers before um uh shoot i don't remember the name of the album but it was kind of their first bigger one uh, and it was amazing Channel island burn that's the one yeah. and that was funny because like it hadn't actually come out yet but um sort of albums being leaked online was sort of it was that was starting to happen much more commonly and so everybody knew all the words to all the new songs and they hadn't released any songs but it just had gotten out 
And so it was sort of a weird vibe because the band, you know, kind of commented on it and, but it was the beginning of that happening, which was also kind of crazy. So I, I love like the, uh, my fondness for those sort of venues where it's like, you know, it's not, it's a venue in the sense that there's a stage and people know where it is, but it's not, you know, the same level as, um, yeah, I mean, the same level as like a chain reaction or whatever, you know, it's like one step below in the sense of you got to do a little digging in order to know what's up with it. But it's like, that's, those are the places that you see so many bands play, you know, whatever, a year or two before they're playing. Like, it's like they skip chain reaction and then they immediately go to like, you know, the glass house of Pomona or something. It's like, you see them right before they, they quote unquote break or get more popular. And it's like, it's such a cherished, uh, memory that I have that I know that you have going to that venue as well. Yeah, definitely. That venue was a big deal. And, um, and there wasn't any, I mean, I don't think that there was actually anything that exactly like that in Cleveland. You know what? I take that back. I do know that there was a venue like that in Cleveland, but again, I completely missed it. There was a venue called speak in tongues that I heard about way after the fact. So, Got it. um, but, but it's cool. All the, all the, all the cities, all the regions, they have those venues and it's just all about finding them and then trying to keep up with who's coming in and, it's a great way to, to learn about local bands because those that's where all the local bands play. They're not going to play necessarily Chain Reaction while they're getting their shit together and just starting out. They're going to play these venues, and you go and see them and find something special. Right, and you also, the support that you try to give to those particular venues too because you know it's run by people who are like maybe a year older than you. It's like you feel that... Um, onus of it in ways that you might not if it's just like a you know regular quote-unquote rock club yeah absolutely i mean it's i mean this is a gross generalization but ultimately they're in it to maintain it and not necessarily to make money off of it and so you're by going to these shows and supporting these venues you're you're giving back to your community you're giving back to your scene so yeah yeah for sure and so um you know focusing on your time in you know the suburbs of cleveland um, you know, what was your, uh, what was your family structure like? Like mom and dad in the house, brothers and sisters? Sure. Yeah. Um, both my parents, uh, were around. I am the oldest of four. And, uh, so I've got two younger brothers and, uh, the youngest a sister is about 10 years younger than me. And, um, yeah, we grew up in the suburb of Cleveland. It was like kind of nice. We were sort of on the border between, so we're 20 minutes away from Cleveland, but if I drive 15 minutes in the other direction, I'm surrounded by Amish. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a lot of fields where I was, but then you could kind of quickly get into sort of the cute touristy, uh, what, what passes in Ohio for touristy town, which was sort of my central town where I went to school. And, um, yeah, it was pretty, it was just pretty chill. You know, we lived on a cul-de-sac and we left our bikes out in the yard and nobody locked their doors and, and all that. It's, uh, moving out to the West coast. And, and when I was in college, you know, it was the same thing, sort of the small town that our college was in same kind of vibe. So moving out to the West coast was a little bit of a shock of like, no, no, no nobody does that here. Right. Um, yeah, but, um, uh, but yeah, it was just, I was surrounded, uh, both sides of my family are fairly extensive and they were all, for the most part, centralized in Northeast Ohio. I think the furthest away that anybody in my family lived was Pittsburgh. We all saw each other on for events, you know, birthdays and all the holidays and stuff. So, um, yeah, it was it was really nice. It's really chill. It's a it's a beautiful place. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And what did, what did your parents do for a living? So uh, my mom was a middle school teacher for, I want to say, 37 years, 38 years. So she was in it the whole time. 
uh, my dad was started out before I was born. He was a high school teacher. And right about the time I was born or a little bit before, he actually decided to become involved in politics, not actually being a politician, like running for office, but like as a public servant. So uh, when I grew up, he worked for uh, he worked directly for the mayor of Cleveland at the time, who was this guy named George Voinovich. And so I have these sort of foggy memories of like crawling all over the, the Cleveland City, uh, Cleveland City Hall, which is this beautiful old building on the lake. And he maintained that year, uh, that career as a public servant um, for a pretty long time. And then ultimately he retired from that and then went back into teaching. And he became a high school teacher for another, I want to say, eight to ten years before he, fought, before he fully retired. Got it, got it. So that you, yeah. you definitely had this sort of, uh, I guess, public servant-ish experience of people you know, contributing to something that's larger than themselves. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, because of uh, all of those experiences, um, my family is not sort of militantly pro-union, but the the, the teachers union in particular was, you know, it's very good to the people that are in that union. And you can see kind of the power that they wield and the good that they do. So very pro-union out of that experience. And my dad was in a public union as well through his government work and and in teachers unions. That was um, that sort of um, not camaraderie was the word I'm looking for. Uh, anyway, that was, a, that was an important thing that came out of it. And, um, yeah, being a teacher is, I mean, these folks are saints, not that every teacher is good, but I think it's really one of the most selfless things that you can do as a career. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I have my mother was a teacher and then my wife is a teacher. So it's like, I do feel that if you're surrounded by that and you see it, you know, either your mother or father teaches, you have this weird compulsion to be like, I feel like I could teach, you know, like if for whatever reason I decided not to be involved in whatever I'm involved in, you could kind of go that direction just because you do see how, yeah, it's a struggle and it's hard, but then also how rewarding it is too. Yeah, totally. I'm not, and I'm not sure about you, but I've definitely like over, I am not a teacher. That is not my career, but, um, I've definitely considered it over various, you know, going through different trials and tribulations. Like maybe I should try teaching. Um, that said, like what new teachers are put through, uh, is very unappealing. (laughs) And so that's been one of the things that has, uh, kept me away from it. Um, you know, also because I don't know if I would actually like teaching, but it's certainly something that you know, sticks in my head and always comes up if I am considering a career change or a job change, like, oh, I could maybe, maybe I could try that. But it's so much harder than that. You know, it's so much more serious and involved than just kind of like off the top of your head, like, oh, maybe, maybe this will work. It's, it's a full, it's fully a lifestyle yeah. to, to choose to pursue that. So, yeah, it's definitely yeah. it's definitely not one of those things where you just show up for a shift and then leave. You know, it's like people that want that job, like you're not going to get that in teaching. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. True. Um, although I do, man, I miss I miss the summers, the summers off because my summers off would be my whole family having the summer off. And so we would be able to do shit and uh, like go on trips and uh, that, you know, People talk about it all the time, but man, that would be nice. Yeah, totally. It, yeah. You know, where everyone's on the same schedule and it's like, oh, that's great. Yeah, we don't need to worry about anything because we know we're going to travel in you know June, July, and August. Yep, yep. It's super nice. Yeah. Um, and so what kind of kid did you find yourself being as you were you know, growing up uh, as far as like, you know, you were the first on the scene. So were your parents like incredibly strict on you or you know, were you kind of generally speaking a good kid or was that the, uh, you know, did the music... Uh, <laughs> Once that started to happen, they started to not understand what you were going for. 
Well, out, out in the world, like outside of my family, I was a really quiet kid. I read a lot. Um, that was my, that was my thing. Like I, I read, you know, when I was a little kid, I found like the encyclopedia Brown books. And then eventually I found Roll Dahl and I would just like dive into those books in the house. I was a little shit. Um, and I think that because I was the firstborn, my folks were, and my folks were just sort of figuring out how to be parents. Um, I think I got away with a lot more than I would have if I was definitely than my brothers, um, and, and my sister. So, uh, yeah, I just, I was able to act out or maybe be much more bratty as a child, definitely as a child than, um, anybody who knew me outside of my family would necessarily think that I acted that way. Um, but, uh, at, at certain point when I got to my teens, I think that those, the, the kind of introspective quiet on the outside guy, uh, started becoming more of my personality. Like I'm, I'm outgoing in personal situations, but around groups, I'm just like, I want to be quiet. I just want to listen. Um, and that started becoming a lot more of who I am and how I define myself. Sure. That makes sense. (laughs) It's funny. I like how you, um, you know, you, you were able to phrase that in regards to, you know, being like a little, little shit at home, but then, you know, outside people would probably just like, Oh, John, John seems like such a well-adjusted boy. And their, your parents were just like, listen, he gives us hell at home. <laughs> like just yeah, that, yeah, that juxtaposition. Yeah. And I was just always very like, um, I, I think this was a problem in school where I just, if I didn't think what you were asking me to do was important, I wasn't going to do it. I wasn't going to fight you. I wasn't going to like sit there and yell at you, but I'm just like, no, I'm going to read and I'm not going to do that thing. So, uh, that was maybe the only way I ever acted out outside of the family is that I would just kind of very hard headedly, uh, say like, no, no, I'm, I'm going to go read my book. Yeah. So. I'm good. And to me, those were always the, uh, the, the kids that were, Yes, on one hand, difficult to deal with, but at the same time, you also knew that there was a lot going on in their heads. You know, it was like you were you were just you know going to the beat of your own drummer, and you were learning stuff on your own, as opposed to you know some people where they thrive in a classroom, but then outside of the classroom, they don't do any other you know research on anything. They're just like, oh yeah, whatever, I go to school, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my parents were also pretty adamant about us being uh, involved in some kind of sports, so we were swimmers since forever. Uh, you know, we tried playing, you know, soccer and football and baseball. I, I, I played them all. I have all my jerseys somewhere, you know? Um, so there was that part of it too, but it's not like being in those, doing those sports, which I definitely enjoyed. I, it didn't make me more of a team player. It didn't make me open up anymore. I just enjoyed being active. I enjoyed playing those games, you know? Yeah, sure. That makes sense. Um, and so then you started to, I mean, from other interviews I, I looked at, it seems like you started to piece together kind of, you know, what music was like, it was an important part where, you know, I guess you were, uh, you know, you took piano lessons in your choir and stuff like that. Correct? Yep. And that's then, correct. Yeah. And, and then you started to, you know, get an exposure to, you know, MTV and start to see all the music videos that were, you know, so huge in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, but what, like it's, it seems like, you know, guitar was your first instrument of choice that you felt like you could go out on your own and, you know, be obsessed with. Uh, what I guess what attracted you to guitar? I know it's like a basic question, but like it seems like you had musical experience, but then you were like, no, but this is my this is my thing here. here yeah, it is. I mean, I, I definitely just because um, when I was when I was a little kid, I listened to like, you know, 
fancy hip hop at the time, like Belle Biv DeVoe and that kind of thing. But there was like a, it really was MTV sort of made that appealing. I, it's like all these bands came on. It's like Def Leppard came on the screen or something. And the guitar players were like playing. And it's like, I, again, like you said, I had this musical background, but not, wasn't really loving the outlets that I had for it, but it's just something really stuck with me when it came to guitar and it really stuck in my head. And the big thing that happened is that, uh, I had a couple friends growing up who actually started playing guitar. And so, and that was when MTV had also started to make the switch and was showing, you know, the, early 90s grunge like Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins and stuff like that. So I remember uh, one of my uh, friends as a kid who was an incredible musician at the time and is still, to my understanding, a great musician, he got his first guitar. And so he came over and he was like, hey, here's this is how you play Come As You Are. This is how you play the beginning of... Um, that Smashing Pumpkins song today. And all of a sudden it was like the stuff that I was seeing on the, the music that I loved that I was getting through MTV all of a sudden like, Oh wait, I can play that. That's how that sounds. It was, uh, it just immediately clicked for me in that way, uh, that I could sort of emulate, emulate that music, emulate what I was seeing by learning guitar. Yeah. There's nothing more powerful than when you, you're mimicking something and then you actually accomplish it it's like oh my god like i am a i'm a pro you're just like i'm amazing that this was able to happen oh yeah totally just like oh man i could play that that three note that four note beginning to smashing pumpkins today it's like i'm a tall bald weirdo i'm billy corgan it's cool you know um totally so it was all about it really was in the beginning it was all about mimicry it was all about like just i want to do that i and i want to feel like i'm that thing by, by playing those songs, I want to feel that way. So, yeah, no, that's really cool. Um, and then, uh, you know, did you, did you care about school? Like I know school was, you know, fostered inside your home as far as being an important thing. Um, but did you find yourself being, you know, engaged and was that something that you were like, okay, no matter what, I'm going to go to college. Like this was always the, the path for you. Uh, school was always, um, I was engaged depending on the class. Um, if it was an English class, I was, I was in it, you know, like literature class and sort of, and anything writing related, I was very in it. Um, and actually we had, I had, a, I had throughout my school career, I had this one particular history teacher or government teacher that I had like way back when I was in eighth grade. And then he jumped up to the high school while we were there and I took him for a bunch of other classes and uh, so I, I had this real love of history and storytelling just because of the way he taught the class. Um, where I was least engaged was science and math. And it wasn't that I was bad at them, but they just didn't, um, they didn't really move me or hold my attention. And so I would be, you know, I'd be pretty hard-headed about it. I'd be like, well, I'm not going to give this, I'm, I'm really not going to try hard at this. I'm just going to do sort of the minimal amount to get my B or something. And, and then I spend more time and energy on everything else. Um, but then it was always because of my folks and, and what their expectations, um, it, there was never any question that I would go to college. Um, and I, I, I never even, I never thought about not going. And so I never thought about what my life would be like if I didn't go or what I would do if I didn't go. It was just like, no, 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 you're, you work every summer and then you go to college and you work every summer and then you're going to work for the rest of your life. That, that was like understood to be what was going to happen. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. What did you, yeah. uh, what, did, what, what school did you go to first in Pittsburgh and then what, uh, what were you studying? 
So I went to a college called Allegheny College, which is in Meadville, Pennsylvania, which is actually like it's two hours north of Pittsburgh and 30, 40 minutes south of Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, and uh, Meadville was kind of an interesting small town uh, just because it was sort of like it was a very blue collar town. And this college, Allegheny, was uh, kind of the liberal arts college on the hill that was uh, had a somewhat contentious relationship with the locals because, you know, it's a lot of, you know, uh, liberal arts college students coming down, getting drunk, puking everywhere, and then walking back up the hill to their dorms and everyone, you know, the town is left to clean up the mess. So that, that was kind of the relationship. Uh, but while I was there, I, um, uh, I got a degree in English literature. I had a, uh, a specific focus at the end on, uh, post-colonial literature, um, which was very interesting. And I still, you know, read up on post-colonial literature and theory. And then I had minors in, uh, psychology and guitar performance. I actually, uh, uh, learned how to be a classical guitar player while I was in college. And that's been pretty invaluable ever since. Wow. That's, um, yeah, I mean, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Like all the, all the stuff that you were doing is definitely not, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's highly specific and, you know, in, in many respects, certain aspects of that are, are, uh, I guess, practical for lack of a better term. Um, but I mean, it sounded like, like, what did you, I guess, anticipate on doing after you, you know, you, you graduated and joining a career and doing all that sort of stuff? You know, at the time it was really, it, I didn't, there was some thought like, oh, maybe I'll teach. Um, but really it was just that I wanted to study the thing that was meaningful to me. I wanted to learn to be good at the thing that I loved. Um, and that's why I went. And I, so while I was going through it, I was always under kind of thinking in the back of my head, like, you know, you're going to get a job doing something else. Like this, this does not immediately equate to a career. Um, and I was fine with that. You know, it's like whatever I ended up doing, I have this and it's important to me. And, um, I don't know if you felt this way growing up. I'm not sure what your experience was going to college, but there was something that was definitely relayed to us that sure you were, you should go to college and you should, uh, yeah, you should definitely like major in something that's going to help your career. But there was also this kind of talisman quality to just having the degree. And so that was the thing I remember hearing a lot growing up. It's like, you just need to get the degree. And so that stuck in my head. It was like, Oh, it doesn't necessarily matter what I major in as long as I get the degree. Like that piece of paper means like, Oh, you know, you're going to make this much more money and you're this much more employable. And people don't even necessarily care what you, what you majored in in the first place. They just want that paper. And so to some extent that was a little bit of the driving force of going through all of that, like going through college. It's just like, I, once I have that paper, I'll be able to get a job somewhere else doing something else. And, um, in college is when I first started getting into bands. And so that's when it became kind of clear to me that like, Oh no, no I'm going to, I'm going to be in bands. I'm going to keep playing music and I'll have a day job and that'll support my ability to be a musician in every other part of my life. I, yeah. I really like that train of thought that you're talking about in regards to, yeah, just getting a degree because it's like, there was definitely a premium placed on like literally just, you know, just having that piece of paper that validates you as a human being from the, you know, a career world. Yeah. And like, it's like, like, and I also like the idea of what you had in regards to, Hey, I really want to 
get specific with the stuff that I enjoy because at the end of the day, I'm going to have a piece of paper that's going to you know tell employers that I'm valuable, even though it may not be directly applied to whatever discipline it is that you know I'm I'm applying for or whatever. Yeah, 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 totally. I, I will say though, in retrospect, I'm actually still entirely happy with pursuing literature because um, I, I do have an answer for people now when they bring up the the idea of like, oh, it wasn't. How do you use that? You know, how do you use that degree in your job? And the thing that I got out of, you know, literature and a deep reading of text is one, the ability to communicate ideas through writing. I mean, so I I enjoy writing and I am decent enough at it partially because I went through the whole experience. But then also like reading a text and sort of recognizing subtext and being able to sort of do a really deep reading and get sort of get a deep understanding um, and investigate something and question things like that came out of that experience. And that's, that's helped me my entire life since, you know? So in that, and it's helped me again, my career has nothing to do on, on, on paper has nothing to do with English literature, but it's helped me the entire time. So, right. No, that's really cool. And yeah. so, and so like you, like you mentioned the, you know, once band life started to come into play, is that when, uh, so apologies for probably mispronouncing your first band's name was, was Tygon. How do you how do you say that? <laughs> so that was Tygon. And okay. that was, uh, that was my first band when I moved. Sorry, that was not my first band. That was the, up until pretty recently when I think, I think Kowloon may have surpassed it at this point, but that was my longest running band in the Bay area. My first band was actually, uh, I started when I was in college and we were called the world must know. And we played pop punk and just, um, a lot of, again, a lot of sort of Pittsburgh based bands and touring bands came through and played our college. And we opened up a bunch of those shows. So if you went to Allegheny college and gave a shit about, you know, music from, you know, 2000 to 2003 or 2004, you probably saw us like half a dozen times. And, uh, that was the first band. Okay, got it, got it. And th- and that was the first time that you started to, you know, play shows and maybe tour a little bit? Yep, tour a little bit. Like, uh, I think we went as far as, as like, Buffalo, and uh, we may have played... I think we played once or twice in Cleveland, which were always kind of a mess. Um, and that was as far as we ever really spread out. I don't even... I'm not even entirely certain if we ever played Pittsburgh, but it was... We played the college, we played uh, little house shows uh, in the community outside the college, and then Buffalo once or twice, Cleveland once or twice, and that was it. But it was um, a pretty big and constant part of my life and all of our lives. Who, everybody was in the band for like three years. We practiced two to three times a week, like driving all our equipment to the band room on campus and unloading it in three feet of snow on icy bricks. and, and But didn't miss a practice, you know, that kind of thing. Just, right. it was, it was, it was a big deal. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And yeah. did you immediately like touring and that whole, you know, sort of aspect of, uh, you know, the camaraderie, but then also there, like you mentioned, you know, the, <laughs> the hard realities of loading equipment and, uh, other unglamorous things that many people don't consider when the idea of playing in a band comes in their head. I mean, the, the initial shows that we played were so few and far between that were out of town. It didn't even feel like touring at that point. Cause you, we, we were so new at this shit and we didn't know anybody. We were just like, all of the guys in that band came from, um, sort of different parts of Pennsylvania and Ohio. And we're not entire. none of us were connected to any scene. We just started a band at our college 
where there were not really any other bands and you know we'd cold call people and see if we can come play a show at like a vfw hall in in uh buffalo and so we would you know make the drive to the college to buffalo and then we would drive back and that was really the extent of it when i finally did start touring was with um was actually with tygon that was the first extensive touring i did and um i think i liked it touring touring's always been pretty punishing um just in terms of like cramming a bunch of people into a car, but I love playing shows. I, it's the thing that really keeps me going is I just very much enjoy being on stage and having that kind of cathartic moment of being fully immersed in the music. So no matter how shitty it got or, you know, I, the first tag on tour was five dudes in, um, a Subaru Forester with a trailer. So we're just all shoulder to shoulder. And then one guy laying down in the trunk and (laughs) right. And, you know, touring, like, I think we played, we toured through the Southwest. So we were like in the middle of summer, you know, going to Tucson and whatnot. And it was, it was a mess, but the shows ultimately were fun. The shows ultimately make everything kind of worth it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you can, you can forget about the, you know, eight hour drive it took you to play in front of 10 people. Cause you're just like, Hey, wow, there's people here. And they're actually like, are seem to like what we're doing. That's cool. Yeah, totally. And, and there's just, there's just a feeling to play. I don't know. I, like there's even in a practice, you know, like you can get so wrapped up in the music that you're playing. It's, it's cathartic. It's euphoric. And like to just play is, is really exciting and fun. Yeah. It, like the people, the people aren't, they're not unnecessary, but if they're not there, maybe they'll be there at the next show and I'll get that, I'll get that fixed too, you know? Right. No, that's cool. And so, you know, seeing as it's kind of uh, going against your personality in regards to, you know, you being more reserved and, uh, you know, not really the, uh, uh, you know, the life of the party in regards to the loud guy that walks in the room and starts to get everybody's attention. uh, Was it natural for you to get up on stage and kind of perform or did you have to learn how to be comfortable at that? I had to learn how to be comfortable for it. Um, it wouldn't be something that was like I was conscious of, but I would get on stage and my hands would be shaking. You know, it took me, it took me a couple of years to get over that, you know, and then we'd start playing and the first songs would sound like shit. And like, I, you know, I'd fuck up the lawn, all the guitar. And then like, eventually I'd settle down. Um, and then, and then that just went away. I just started, I'd played enough shows at a certain point that that was not, that was not a concern. So there was never sort of, a, I, I always sort of, you know, I'm on stage and I'm owning my own presence and I'm owning my own playing. Um, so to be able to fully like, own how I'm projecting myself out. That meant that I was never consciously nervous about playing live, but there was definitely something kind of unconscious, like, you know, like if you're, if you don't speak a lot in public and you have to go do public speaking and then you're just rambling or you're going super fast, something, and you're not conscious of doing that. There were those things that I had to get over that felt very unconscious. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that, yeah. I mean, because, yeah, I always find it interesting just because, you know, so many people that are drawn to, you know, uh, independent subcultures have a tendency to be like, yeah, I'm fine, like being alone and like I don't need anybody paying attention to what I'm doing. But then the idea of, you know, actually expressing yourself artistically and then having people pay attention to it and then having to reckon with that, like, wait a minute, I didn't really do this thing to get attention, but now it's getting attention. And how does that sit in your head? It's like such a, um, it's such an interesting dichotomy. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. It's, uh, it's, it still feels a little weird, but I still feel like me, man. I, I don't, it doesn't, it, it's a nice, it feels nice to have people like what I do. You know, I care about this music and it, I care about the bands that I'm in and it's, 
Um, I would care about them if they were not famous because it's meaningful to me, but to have that, um, to have people know about us and, and like our music, any of my bands has always just, it's, it's a little weird, but it feels great. I don't know. It's nice. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so then, uh, I guess, you know, in conjunction with you, um, moving out to the West coast, like what prompted that? Was it a job? Was it just the idea that you wanted to change the scenery? Uh, change of scenery. My partner and I, at the time, we both, uh, uh, she was from Western New York. And, um, so we kind of knew the region and we just were like, we should try somewhere else because, you know, we could stay, you know, we could move to Pittsburgh, we could move to Buffalo or Cleveland or whatever, but, um, why don't we try something kind of drastic? And, uh, as it turns out, she had kind of a distant relative relative in San Francisco who could get her a job. And so we were like, there you go, let's go there. And that ended up being the reason that we came out here. Like, let's try a new place and let's try something again, drastically different. And so, uh, yeah, just, you know, I worked, I worked a summer after college and saved up a bunch of money and then flew out here and eventually found a job because jobs were, and to some extent remain pretty plentiful in the Bay area and, uh, got a band as quickly as I could. And that's been, that's been kind of it ever since. Got it. Um, and so the, uh, you know, cause Kowloon Walled City has been around for, like you said, was it like 11, 12 years? How long have you guys been going? So Kowloon's been around for, I want to say 11 years, okay. 10, 11 years. Uh, I've only been part of the band for maybe six or seven of those years now. Um, okay. Yeah. I was not on the first EP and the first album, uh, but I was a fan of the band and had seen the band and knew Scott, um, from him recording Tygon. So, uh, yeah, he asked me to join when the previous guitar player decided to move. Got it. Um, and so was that your, um, first, I guess band? Well, I mean, like you said, Tygon was, was, you know, around and recording and everything like that. And did, I guess, you know, did you ever have a notion that you wanted to do music from like a full-time make money music business endeavor? Or was, you know, the idea of just playing in bands like, well, just see how far it goes. Um, it was see how far it goes, but it was coupled with the idea that there was no way anybody was going to pay me money to do this shit. Um, you know, like I, I love weird music and I love dissonant music and, um, I don't want to, it's not to say that people wouldn't like that, but I was never going to, I was never going to write a pop song. It's just not necessarily in me or it doesn't feel like it's in me. And so I, I was being in these bands, but it was always like, because it's fulfilling and meaningful to me, it was, there was never any thought that it could be make money or I could do it full time. Um, because that's just not the music I was interested in and the music I was interested in making. Right. Yeah. I was, there was no, um, easy path that you could see that would make sense for, uh, the music that you wanted to create being anything, you know, uh, viable as far as like, Oh yeah, people are going to want to hear, hear this really weird, heavy stuff that I want to hear. Like you said, this dissonant, heavy stuff that you want to create. Sure. And I didn't know anybody doing that. Like everybody I knew was a punk and was like playing house shows or, like, or, you know, had a, had a day job working in San Francisco in a company looking at Excel all day and then, you know, playing weird rock music in small clubs at night. That was, that was everybody. I didn't know one person who actually had a career making music outside of people who were like session musicians or classical musicians or like touring jazz musicians. But that felt like such another world that it didn't count. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, because I definitely think there's a certain uh, mentality that started to shift. I think you know once you know, I would say early 2000s is when you started to see, in my opinion, a shift in independent music where um, you know you're whatever ten plus years removed from you know bands like Green Day and Rancid and all the you know the punk wave that exploded. And then all of a sudden bands were able to form with the idea of like, oh, yes, we want to do this as a living. Whereas like, you know, most bands that existed from, you know, 97 to whatever, you know, 2002, 2003, um, that that there wasn't really a path that you could see, even if you were doing something that was, you know, more poppy in the independent music genre, it was still kind of like, ah, it seems like a far fetched idea. Yeah, and, and to be fair, the poppiness is a bit of a misnomer on my part. Like, clearly, there's heavy musicians. I mean, I'm in the Bay Area, which is the home of thrash, and like, right. you can be that band. But um, again, I just I was never doing any any of the kind of music that I saw actually getting popular enough to support someone uh, outside of another job. Yeah, and yeah, and I and I didn't know any of these people who actually had made that made that transition. So it just and you know, that was fine because it's not everybody could be those people and it's fine that they exist and I'm happy they're able to support themselves and support their families. It's, it's really cool that there are people who can have that lifestyle, but that has not been me and that's okay. Right. Exactly. And plus yeah. I, I've always been a really, uh, my, my personal opinion on this is that when people are attached, we're are more tethered to real life because, you know, touring and the touring lifestyle, as you well know, I mean, like it's a suspended state of animation. You're just like, you know, you're like a pink, uh, a pinball being thrown around, being like, "All right, different city each night," and you know, you're not really you're experiencing things, but you're not experiencing the sort of real life that most people um, derive their meaning and experiences from. And so, I, I do believe that there's a real value in you know being creative, but not being swallowed up by the "All right, we got to write a new record because it's been 18 months or whatever." You know, like we gotta we gotta put out another record in order to you know start another cycle or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly, it's important to me to have other things in my life. And I don't know that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm married, um, have a house. Like it's important to me that I have that, um, because I derive a lot of meaning from that. And if I had become a full-time musician, I would, I might not be in this circumstance. I might not be in the position to have that in my life as well. So it's, you know, it is, it's a, it's a balancing act which seems to get harder and harder every year, but, um, it's, it's still worthwhile and it's still, you know, I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so then when you, um, you know, as, as you started to, uh, you know, wrap down Tygon and starting to, you know, be integrated in with the, you know, Kowloon guys and start to, you know, I mean, Kowloon obviously does it as a, uh, you know, a, a, a quote unquote part-time endeavor, but you guys are active in the sense of you play a lot of shows and, you know, tour Europe and do a lot of stuff around that. Um, what, did it, did it feel drastically different than what you were experiencing with Tygon or was it a, a relatively easy thing to kind of step into? Uh, it was, uh, it didn't feel different in that, you know, we, the sort of cadence of playing shows was, I would say at the time when I joined Kowloon, it felt, felt close, you know, like Tygon tried to play a lot. We tried to tour. And so the actual amount of playing shows that Kowloon did and the amount of touring that we did, um, that didn't feel too dissimilar. What was different was, um, you know, being, being a member of Kowloon, I had to learn all the old stuff. So there was, you know, learning material that I didn't write 
which that was, that was really the first time in my life that I'd ever had to do that, which was a little odd. And, um, and then there was just the actual feedback of playing live, which was, you know, like Tygon, I, I love that band. I love this, the music we put out. I think it holds up if you like weird shit. Um, but that's not to say that, you know, you could get, you could pack like a venue, like Kowloon is sometimes able to do. And so going and playing in Kowloon is, it's, it's such a different piece. Like there was such more of an immediate immediacy to the music live that you could feel like coming back to you from the audience. And so that was, that was definitely strange. And then the, the writing dynamic in Kowloon is so much different than it was in Taigon there. That took a lot of getting used to as well. Sure. Sure. Um, and then the, the fact that, you know, Kowloon has worked with, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, interesting people as far as either collaborators or people putting out your records and stuff like that. And then, you know, being, uh, a name that is recognized within independent music, um, was that something that, you know, I guess you kind of had to get adjusted to as well, as far as, you know, people being like, Oh, Hey, you're, you're, you're John from Kowloon or whatever. Um, was that ever something you needed to grapple with? Or was that again, an easy transition? It was an easy transition. I mean, and it's not like <laughs> that's, that doesn't come up that much. You know, like I remember I was in guitar center once and dude was like, Oh, you're in Kowloon. Here's some free picks like that. That was, that was nice, but that's oftentimes the extent of it. Like I don't get, like, I don't get recognized locally or otherwise. If I mention that I'm in Kowloon, maybe you get like a, Oh yeah, you know, and that's, that's fine. Um, but that said, I know for a fact that we can go to almost any town in, this country. And now after the Europe experience, maybe, maybe in Europe and, you know, 40 to a hundred people will come out and they'll be stoked. And it was really cool to see that. Like I, I do derive a bit of, um, uh, sort of confidence, uh, from the fact that that is the case and it's, it's cool. Yeah, no, that is really cool. And, it, um, you're uh, kind of what you've been, you know, uh, hinting around at, well, not hinting around, but discussing, where your music taste seems to be, you know, you're, you've approached it from a very um, different standpoint than I think a lot of other people that, you know, kind of get introduced to, you know, bands. They, they start their journey with being like, oh, yeah, I got into, you know, Blink-182 or Green Day. And then, you know, you start to get uh, a more varied taste of music. Your taste seems to be very reminiscent of like what a total nerd record store dude like gets into um and the reason why i mentioned that is because i myself am a nerd record store guy so i i can maybe smell my own but hell yeah <laughs> you're, but your, your your taste is very um you know interesting and i'm not looking for you to be like oh yes i agree with you ray my taste is very interesting but it's just not um uh, it's not very conventional because like the stuff that you mentioned in you know either previous interviews or as far as like influences are concerned um most people don't. And so I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't know, like what, what, what kind of attracts you to the, not only the left of center stuff, but like the left of the left of center, if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. I mean, the big thing that happened that was like my formative moment is I was in college and there was uh, a guy who was in my year at college who was, um, you know, he worked for the, he worked at the college radio station and this was the guy that was responsible for bringing in all of the cool touring bands. I think he was a booking agent back in Pittsburgh. And so I was freshman year and I show up at our coffee shop and there's a show with this band called Unwed Sailor. And I don't know if, I don't know if you remember them at all, but you remember them? Uh, unbelievable band i saw them once they played uh i mean they played a few times here in southern california but i only saw them once and it was uh yeah such a good they're such a good band 
such a fucking fantastic band. And I, I walked into it with no idea what I was getting into. And it was incredible. And so that like that experience really moved me. But while I was, while the show was going on and I haven't exactly confirmed this. So I think the story, this part of the story is a little wonky, but they brought up the casket lottery, the band, the casket lottery. Hell yeah. And yeah. And I, I, what I can't remember is if what they said was that the drummer they were playing with right then at that moment was actually uh, junior from the casket lottery but the name stuck in my head. And so I went back and I went to, you know, MySpace and casket lottery had just put out this album called, uh, survivals for cowards. And, um, and that was it for me, man. Like that was like, at that point I was like, this is the best music that I have ever heard. This is so incredibly immediate and, uh, and emotionally compelling music. I don't give a shit about anything else I listened to beforehand. Um, and I'm going to pursue this. And so, um, and it, that's, that's not to say that the casket lottery were particularly dissonant or particularly weird, but, uh, because there was a, a beautiful melodicism, particularly to those, those early albums, but that was my jump off point. And from there it was like, I just realized that, you know, if you start with the casket lottery, what appealed to me branching out was less the melodic stuff and more the weird stuff. And so that's why I, and I pursued the weirder stuff. Um, in a lot of instances. Nice. That's cool. I, re- I like the casket lottery, um, you know, uh, a kind of entry point because I, I do think that is such a, uh, an interesting band because they did have those, those, you know, catchy hooks, but it's like nothing about the music that was behind the, you know, the catchier vocal parts were simple at all. I mean, basically it was, you know, obviously like coalesce, but a popular version of it. And it was just like, wait, you're doing like, you know, like seven sixteenth time behind a, a yep, spot. Yep. It's like it, none of that made sense. Totally, and and that that's that is the other thing though, because and that's the, we, talk about getting into weird heavy music. Casket Lottery got me into Coalesce, and Coalesce of all of those bands back during that time. And I know actually at that point they had already sort of started their hiatus, but. Um, Man, Coalesce is the band that has stuck with me more than any of those sort of metalcore, heavy bands, whatever. Like, I had my botch moment. I still love that Dillinger album, and I think that they're a great band. But, like, Coalesce is the one that I actually return to those records and still listen to those. So that was that was also pretty key. Yeah, I also love how you can... Um you you see the through lines that many of these people have when they create music and then they you know splinter off and form different bands and stuff you can kind of see it's like oh yeah i see why casket lottery sounds like this because you know clearly coalesce came before them and they learned how to do that and then they just took it off in a little different direction it's uh yeah it's so cool to put those together yeah totally and and even and now like the um casket lottery also this is more on the melodic side but they casket lottery got me into small brown bike and now there's that new band that's like half of small brown bike and the lead singer from the casket lottery and i haven't listened to them yet but i i bet it's rad i'm stoked to check it out and to be able to sort of follow the the trajectory of those musicians like you're saying over the course of that this has been like 15 17 years now that i've been paying attention to those guys it's it's it rules music rules man (laughs) (laughs) no totally and i i find it so uh, and i'm sure you've met people like this where um, you know, music's an important part of many people's lives, but I, you know, I find it so strange when you meet a person who music isn't even like on their radar. It's, it's like, it's something that is so, I wouldn't even call it background noise. It's like, oh yeah, music's all right. It's just like, what do you like? Have you tried? <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it's just like, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. I don't get it. Just like people who, you know, um, uh, 
I equate it to like people who like have are very particular about food. They're like, Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't eat fish. It's like, Oh, you don't like fish. No, I just don't eat it. I have no interest in it. And like people who feel that way about music, it's like, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about something else. I'm sure. Don't talk to me about like sports or anything. Cause I'm, I'm sure I'm that way for sports. Like you're that way for music, but like it, it's, it, it feels like, you know, the thing that I reach for when I meet new people, that sort of thing to connect on is like kind of what do you listen to? And to have that just be a, a blank is uh, challenging. <laughs> totally, totally. Um, and so what what have you done from a career perspective, um, you know, that uh, since you've been in the Bay Area, and I'm sure you've jumped around a few times, but what do you do? Uh, I am, I, I started out and I learned how to, how to, be pretty adept with the Excel program. Of course. And for a long time, and I've talked to Ian about this because Ian, uh, you know, he moved out to the Bay Area, Ian from Kowloon, he moved out to the Bay Area in the early 90s. And there was a while there where if you, if you could just grind with Excel, you could get a job and you can get paid pretty decent. And that was, that was really nice. And so, um, for the first maybe six years that I lived in the Bay area, I was working for one particular company and I was, you know, churning out reports and, you know, I had healthcare and, Oh, sorry. There's folks coming in. Give me one sec. No worries. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I have a class actually. Yeah. 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 So, um, so yeah, just like kind of grinding out Excel, grinding out reports, um, and I made a little bit of a turn um, and worked for ad agencies for a minute. Uh, that was a bad idea. And so I, I no longer work for ad agencies. And now I work for uh, companies that are retailers that have large, uh, like have an ar- large online presence. And I work on their websites and like, you know, tell stakeholders within the organizations how things are going or, you know, make changes to the websites and test whether or not they're effective at, doing X, Y, or Z. So, but it's all still based on like, you know, you know, being able to move numbers around with Excel and kind of look into data and be able to tell a story about like, Oh, this happened. And I could tell you that this happened because you did this two months ago. Um, and so that's been what I do. Nice. That's a, I, I wish I could just say like, Oh, I'm an analyst, you know, but yeah. I, <laughs> right. it's, it's more it, than that. If it, it, it feels like more than that when really it's not, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. It's, it's just like, I look at data, man. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You, you look at data in a different way than most other people. Sure. And, uh, I would highly recommend again, anybody who's in that position where they're like in college and they have a English degree and shit like that. And they're not going to be a teacher and they're not going to be a professor. Don't, don't be afraid of numbers, man. <laughs> like it's, you're going to need that shit. And that's, if I, if I didn't sort of force myself into that particular career, I think eventually I could have like just been a barista and that would have been cool. I probably would have been a lifeguard again. Cause I was a lifeguard as a kid for like 10 years, you nice. know, and that would have been fine. So yeah, sure. You're CPR certified, man. You can hop back in whenever you want. Oh yeah. It's always there for me. My dad likes to tell me if this shit doesn't work out, um, <laughs> I can, I can sit on a beach and, and watch the waves. Right. And be, be a saver of lives. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's fun. <laughs> um, well, the last thing I want to hit on was the, um, you know, in a similar fashion to the way that you have kind of, you know, uh, approached getting into music and diving further into, you know, more weird and obscure genres and offshoots of bands. Um, you know, since you did come from a very sort of classically trained background in regards to your instrument, um, 
I'm sure that that has given you kind of a, a different starting off point than a lot of other people that you know you've maybe played in bands with, where you know you have these these chops that uh, get developed because you literally went to school for them. So, you know, how I guess how does that manifest itself in how you um, you know create music and how you think about it? Um, a lot of it has to do with technique, but I don't mean technique in like this kind of shreddy way. Uh, the big thing about cl- classical guitar is that no matter how fast you're going, no matter how difficult a thing that you're doing, um, they teach you that there's a way to play specifically which fingers to put where, where you can make it as easy as possible. And so that's the thing. Like I like weird music. I like, you know, dissonance and I like, uh, trying to play like clusters of notes that don't sound good together. But if you play them in just the right way, it's cool or has a cool effect. And it's when I'm, when I'm setting this stuff up, I'm not thinking about like, Oh, it's going to put the A sharp next to the G or something like, you know, something silly like that. Not silly. But what I'm thinking about is, okay, I like how these notes sound great next to each other to me, just to me. How do I, how do I play them? How do I get there? in the easiest way possible. And so it becomes a lot about just like with, you know, your fretting hand, where, where do your fingers go and, and becoming very good at, uh, having a lot of dexterity, but again, not in a shreddy way, more in like a, I can stretch my pinky and my index finger as far along the fretboard as possible and therefore hit these two notes that you don't often hear next to each other. Um, and it sounds cool. And how do I do that in such a way that I'm not cramping, you know, in the middle of, playing or or i can hit it consistently live while i'm also like losing my shit and like swinging my guitar neck around um so that's been the thing is like uh, i i want to play difficult music that is maybe a little difficult to hear but it's not if if you put in the time and effort it's not necessarily difficult to play it just requires a lot of planning and and kind of sitting down and and trying to do it as um succinctly as possible sure no, that's that's really cool. Like succinct, I think is the uh, the operative word there. Where you know when you when you are coming at it from a standpoint of you know you've never taken a lesson and you've just kind of self taught through listening to records and stuff like that. Like clearly, there's no problem with that because people you know not only get away with it but thrive in that environment. But then once it comes down to um, certain aspects of being you know efficient and being able to like string things together without just like throwing part on top of part on top of part it's like oh this is how i can get there more efficiently and <laughs> yeah yeah and actually that is the word that is the word i was searching for efficiency that is when i was taking classical that's what they pounded in your head is like you have to be efficient with your movements and if you are then you could do some cool shit that you know you, you have so you have many fewer limitations to to just replicating whatever's in your head because you will not have those sort of physical limitations um from you won't have those physical limitations yeah no that's really really cool yeah well dude thank you for hanging out man this has been fun i i felt uh yeah yeah, very very easy breezy on this conversation it was perfect i loved it totally man this is fun thank you so much oh yeah that was that and that was john thanks john thanks for hanging out i appreciate that uh, fun insightful delightful conversation and uh, who do I got on the show next week? Who do I got on tap? It's a heavy hitter. This one was a lot of fun. And um, Mike Herrera from MXPX, you know, the band that you probably got into maybe when you were in junior high school or something like that. Yeah, well, Mike also does an awesome podcast called The Mike Herrera Hour. And uh, yeah, MXPX is not only still doing it, but incredibly vital 
And um, yeah, it's just fun, fun stuff. And I wanted Mike on the show. So uh, we did that and we really got it deep, deep into some stuff. So uh, yeah, you'll have to wait for that. And then uh, what, uh, what do I got? What do I got? No, that's all. That's all I want to tell you. So next week, right? Tune in Wednesday. Tune in like you're turning it into a radio. Anyways, I digress. But uh, until then, please be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.